Welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, my name is Heather Conley. I direct our Europe program here, and it is with great pleasure that we get to welcome Senator Chris Murphy, the newly re-elected <laughs> senator from Connecticut, and one of the most thoughtful voices uh, in the Senate on foreign policy. I, we thought this would be a great moment a week after the midterm elections, although some of those results are still coming in, that it would be the perfect time before things get so busy in the lame duck session to have uh, Senator Murphy here to help us think about, after the midterms, the transatlantic agenda. You now serve as the ranking member on the European subcommittee uh, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so, of course, we never know what everyone's committee assignments will, will look like. Uh, you have been such an extraordinary uh, voice on, on European issues. So we thought what we do is have a conversation with Senator Murphy for the next 30 minutes or so, and then we will let you get back to the, the business that you need to conduct. And then I'm going to invite two uh, CSI co CSIS colleagues, Louis Lauder and Bill Reinship here, and then we're going to wrestle a little bit with more of those issues. But welcome, Senator. We Thanks are so me. grateful that you are here. I think our challenge, though, is we got a long list right. to talk about. To uh, so I'm going to start with um, something that we focus a lot here at CSIS on Russia. Yeah. So over the last couple of of weeks, we have had the announcement first by President Trump, uh, a little bit uh, unanticipated before a rally, and then Ambassador John Bolton's visit to Moscow, where we suggested that in due course we are going to withdraw from the INF Treaty. Lots of questions about extending the New START Treaty. You were very much part of those conversations when the Senate ratified the New START Treaty. What, what is your sense on, on the arms control agenda in Russia? And then let's just talk about it more broadly, what uh, the Russia agenda looks like in the next Congress. Well, I, listen, I, uh, thank you for having me, first of all. And I know we <laughs> do you, have a you. lot of, we do have a lot of- <laughs> So um, I jump right in. No, 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 that's all right. We have a lot of ground to, to cover, so it makes sense to uh, get right in. Um, and I have, um, you know, I have enjoyed uh, the last six years on the Foreign Relations Committee and look forward to a, another six. Uh, and thank you for all the help and counsel that you've given uh, me and, and many of us uh, who are new to the Senate uh, in these matters. Uh, listen, I, the, you know, the, the announcement of the withdrawal from the INF is consistent with, you know, a much broader agenda from the um, anti-institutionalists in and around this administration. They are uh, seeking to find as many multilateral organizations to withdraw us from, from those that they can't withdraw us from. They want to poke holes and weaken uh, others. And it stems from you know, this radical idea of liberty at the heart of this White House and at the heart of the wing of the Republican Party that is um, uh, headed and influenced by Steve Bannon, this idea of liberty in which um, any association beyond yourself and your immediate family um, is a weakness. And thus, as you get associations that are further distanced from your physical person, um, that is um, the greatest sign of weakness, thus the idea that countries would bind together in any form of association is deeply uh, antithetical to the whole way that many of the folks in the White House think today. Um, and so I think you have to just view the INF withdrawal in that context. 
um, in, in the context of all these other uh, um, agreements that we've pulled out of, and it's gonna be up to us and the Congress to try to bring together some bipartisan coalition to remind the administration about uh, why it is more likely to get Russian compliance with the treaty inside of it rather than outside of it. Um, of course, the most concerning um, part of Trump's announcement of withdrawal was his failure once again to consult with our allies. This treaty, frankly, matters much more to those that are in range of these intermediate missiles uh, than to the United States. Um, and uh, um, uh, you know, if we're going to have any kind of conversation about uh, pulling out, you can't do it without talking to our European allies, something that you know this president seems particularly particularly bad at. Well, speaking of allies, it was a rough weekend uh, on the allied conversation. I, I just want to pull that thread a little bit more. Um, uh, and in some ways, it's in, in keeping. Uh, President Macron, uh, whether that was at the UN General Assembly speech in September, has put forward a different vision of multilateralism, internationalism, to try to solve uh, complex global challenges. Um, and how do you, I, I get this question all the time from reporters, so I'm gonna just <laughs> turn the question back on you. Maybe you can help me with the answer. What are we to make of the constant acrimony uh, between the president, but very specific of allies on the trade agenda, on the NATO burden sharing agenda. These are important issues. They deserve important attention. Where does this keep getting us as we just keep firing away at each other? Where does your sense and, and where does the policy need to be? Because there's gotta be some balancing mechanism, I think, from these uh, very damaging tweets. Well, listen, the president did us somewhat of a favor over the course of the last month when he's pulled back the veil and admitted that he is, uh, in fact, a nationalist, that his only concern is about the uh, health of the United States, that he thinks it's, a, again, a sign of weakness to think about global health. Uh, of course, the policies he's pursuing are actually hurting the United States um, as well. Um, but I think at the, at the heart of this, you have to understand where the American public is coming from. Um, you know, he finds purchase with this argument um, about nationalism, about uh, the need to put up walls to focus internally. Um, because, uh, you know, in broad swaths of this country, including big parts of Connecticut, um, they are not convinced that the United States participation in a global economy has helped us, right? I still, in my state, have these big hulking factories that are unoccupied, that everyone drives by as they go to the grocery store downtown, and rightly or wrongly, they are convinced um, that it is the global economy that has emptied out uh, a lot of the middle-class jobs that just don't exist any longer in this country. And so as you have more and more people in this country who are living paycheck to paycheck, um, as you do nothing about the plight of the disappearing middle class, um, presidents that say, I don't care about anything other than what is happening inside this country um, are gonna continue to find um, you know, to, to, to find a, a, a home for that argument. And so I think unless we fix our domestic politics and our domestic economy, um, politician after politician is going, to, um, is going to be successful in attacking 
a world order that seems to, to many of my constituents have moved jobs to other places. But part of our success is growing the transatlantic economy, which is the largest in the world. And it's unclear um, where those trade conversations are. We've now, U.S. has imposed tariffs on, on the EU, steel and aluminum tariffs. They've put countermeasures on that act. We have uh, Commissioner Malmstrom here this right. week meeting uh, today. Uh, can you sell to your constituents that we want to grow the pie if we can, you know, remove regulatory burdens and increase the opportunity that Americans can sell more products to Europe? I, I certainly can. I mean, listen, a trade agreement with Europe is much easier to sell than agreements with, uh, with, with less developed nations. In Connecticut, we do 40% of our existing trade uh, with Europe. Uh, and so I th think you'd find um, a lot of democratic support for a Europe agreement. I have low expectations for what um, the U.S. trade rep and um, Maelstrom are going to be able to work out. But even if it was, you know, laying the groundwork for um, an ability two to three years from now to restart TTIP negotiations, that would be uh, that would be positive. So yes, I think amongst the trade agreements that are the easiest to sell, a European trade agreement is the easiest. I think in many ways it's easier to sell here than it is in Europe if you started to get into a bigger, broader agreement. But you know, thus far, it seems as if the set of negotiations they're, happening, they're having are are fairly are fairly limited. Well, and I think it's difficult because you know, the EU does not itself have a mandate for this negotiation. Uh, right. It's unclear uh, where they were going. But again, we want to we want to encourage it's not about us or them or we achieve something and they can't to grow that pie. I'm wondering how do your constituents, when they see the concern about NATO and burden sharing. Um, how do you respond to questions that you get from constituents and town hall meetings? Does this factor into it? Because it's, it's part of that message of allies are a drain, allies don't you know, amplify and magnify America's power. Yeah, it doesn't come up in town halls. It doesn't. Um, okay, well, no. maybe that's the, uh, <laughs> there no, we go. <laughs> I, I, no, I think, it's important. I think it's important to understand that, they're right? This is not, you know, top right. of mind for folks back, you know, even in my state. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, when, when the topic does come up, first of all, you know, we, we spend a lot of time trying to explain how NATO actually does work, right? And there is no big account that people <laughs> are not paying into or are overdue yeah. in their payments for. It's not right. Um, we remind folks all the time that the only time we have ever um, uh, exercised uh, Article 5 was in defense of the United States. Um, and, you know, I, I talk a lot in Connecticut about how um, NATO ultimately is a big economic winner for my state because so long as uh, we are in a tight alliance with Europe, then the chances that Europeans will buy products from Pratt & Whitney uh, and from Sikorsky are much greater. Um, uh, you know, what Macron talked about last week has been an open secret for now a year and a half. It was last year, shortly after Trump started coming after NATO, that our European allies started to quietly make these other plans for how they would purchase uh, defense goods from European suppliers, cutting out the United States. And so we have been very concerned from an economic standpoint about what we have to lose, never mind.
mind um, the fact that uh, that the you know underpinnings of the alliance starting to weaken are terrible for U.S. national security. We definitely have uh, thinking of submarine construction and, and things like that uh, at the NATO summit in July a new Atlantic Command uh, mm -hmm. back in Norfolk, which emphasizes uh, protection of the sea lanes in the North Atlantic, anti-submarine warfare. NATO just completed its largest military exercise centered on Norway um, since the, the Cold War. So we're seeing a lot more of, of NATO celebrating the 70th anniversary next April. My question is, constituents aren't raising this, um, how do we make sure that there is strong bipartisan support for alliances, whether it's NATO, whether it's our Asian partnerships, because we can't meet the challenges, whether that's China, Iran, or Russia, or other challenges, North Korea, without our partners. How do you manage that conversation? Well, it, you know, it's, it's difficult because uh, you know, Mike Pompeo came to the Foreign Relations Committee over the summer, um, and his essential message was pay no attention to what the president says. Just pay attention to what the people who work for me do. And on NATO, you can tell that story, right? You can tell a story about the rhetorical assaults by the president on NATO, but you can also tell a story of, of in many ways, deeper cooperation yes. that is happening uh, between uh, the United States and our European uh, allies. Um, and so many of my Republican colleagues have bought that argument. They literally tuned the president out because they have come to the conclusion that um, the people who work for the president don't listen to him. Um, and the people who work for the president are going to continue to invest in the NATO alliance and are going to um, fight back against Russia behind the scenes, no matter how weak President Trump looks standing next to Vladimir Putin. And so it's difficult sometimes to get bipartisan cooperation in a legislative way because many of my Republican colleagues have been sort of lulled into a bit of a sense of complacency given the fact that they think that there is a separation between rhetoric mm -hmm. and policy as Mike Pompeo came and told us at the Foreign Relations uh, Committee. Um, you know, I'd love to see us, you know, take up uh, bipartisan legislation to require congressional consent before a president withdraws from NATO. Um, I think that that would be an important step, and and I and I would argue that you shouldn't take it for granted that the president will ultimately. Sorry, are you worried yeah. that the president could take that step? I think there are all sorts of things that we thought the president wasn't serious about that he was serious about. Um, I think for much of early 2017, we told ourselves that. Uh, well, the president certainly doesn't like the Iran nuclear agreement. He's got so many people around him who are telling him to stay in. Of course, he'll listen to them. And ultimately, he overrode all of his top national security people and pulled us out of that agreement. And so why would that not? Occur? We all told ourselves he's not going to actually do a ban on entrance to this country from Muslim nations, and he did it. Um, so I don't think you should, uh, I think you should take him at his word on the threats that he's made on NATO. And I would argue that's why Congress should uh, protect the country from a potential executive withdrawal from NATO by requiring congressional consent. And we will see if there is any additional interest in that bill once we reconvene. Well, as I was going to say, part of that bill was in part because of the president's comments on the margins of the NATO summit, but then of course the Helsinki summit, and we are less than two weeks out from President Trump sitting down again with President Putin on the margins of the G20 meeting. Where does that legislation go if it goes anywhere into the new Congress? What is the sort of the, the, the space that you think Congress will be looking at for U.S. policy towards Russia? Because after the Helsinki summit, I felt we went 
backwards in trying to stabilize U.S.-Russian relations. We have huge issues with Russia, and we need to find a path forward to start working on them. Yeah, and, and listen, there are limitations to what Congress can, can do. Um, you know, we have no ability, nor should we, to micromanage foreign policy. Obviously, there will be more interest in legislation like the NATO legislation if a second summit goes right. as badly as the first did. I mean, you've you know heard me make this argument before. Ultimately, um, you know, I worry that our entire foreign policy has become too sanctions dependent. Um, the world is going to tire of U.S. sanctions at some point, and there's frankly some evidence that sanctions work. The Iran nuclear agreement is clearly an instance where it does work, but when you do them in a unilateral way, there's not much evidence that they do. Uh, and so, I would love us to sit down and take a look at the report that you have done, and I hear we'll refresh on all of the Kremlin's capacities. Coming soon. Right? So take a look at what the Kremlin is doing. Take a look at all of the non-kinetic, non-military means by which they are influencing uh, friends and winning over former adversaries and stand up similar capacities in the United States foreign policy toolkits. We won't have the same capacities because we're just not willing to do certain things that the Russians are willing to do. But why do we let them be the only one who showers Europe with energy subsidies? Right? There, there, there's nothing contrary to our value set to decide to spend hard U.S. dollars to build energy independence in Europe if the Russians are prepared to operate at a loss to subsidize pipelines um, in and out of the region for national security reasons. So I, I, we've made some progress here. Um, you know, we passed a new um, development authority in the last Congress that got virtually no attention that really is going to modernize our ability to um, use non-taxpayer dollars, to use U.S.-backed financing to try to um, play a bigger role in development in the region. Um, Senator Johnson and I have introduced legislation standing up a brand new financing capacity specifically for energy independence in the region. Um, so I, I think that we are beginning to get some interest on both sides of the aisle to look at all of these capacities that Russia has that we don't have today that might in the end um, put us in a much stronger bargaining position than we are today when all they really have to worry about is a new set of sanctions. So two quick questions. I really want to bring our audience into this question for the few remaining moments that we have uh, with you. Illiberalism in Europe. Um, we have NATO allies that are profoundly challenging their institutions, their judicial freedoms, uh, media freedoms. What is from, from Congress? How do we approach that? How do you think the next Congress will approach that? And then my second question will be something that you've spent an enormous time thinking about, and your leadership is so important on the Western Balkans. We have enormous volatility right now. Good news, the PRESPA agreement to perhaps get constitutionally uh, amended NATO, uh, Macedonia name, which could bring Macedonia into NATO positive. We have Serbia-Kosovo land swap concepts that are floating out there and a Bosnian election that is just freezing this uh, dysfunction uh, with, with now, I think, some destabilizing impact. What concerns you the most? What role does the moral voice of Congress have in, in these issues? 
I think so long as, and I, you know, I, I apologize for being so tough on the president here, but there's no way to discuss all of this w without understanding the impact that his rhetoric has on the world. I think it's tough for Congress uh, to try to remedy the damage that this president has done to liberal democracy around the world through his regular attacks on the pillars of American democracy, the free press, uh, independence of law enforcement as examples. That being said, I come back to this question of the capacities that the State Department does have. Congress has the power of the purse, right? When we give an agency a mandate to do something and the money to do it, they have to do it. The president actually cannot refuse to spend that money. So if Congress really cares about democracy promotion, then let's fund it, right? Instead of having to dribble out tiny bits of money every year to the uh, capacities in USAID and the State Department that help protect democracies. Let's put real dollars into it. Um, let's double the amount of money that we've put into the Global Engagement Center, right? Let's be a real player uh, to make sure that the true story is being told in these countries on Russia's periphery um, about what Russia is trying to do to undermine your ability to um, invest in self-determination. So Congress, no member of Congress is going to be able to combat the president's bully pulpit, but we can fund capacities and demand the administration follow through on it that does send a message and actually increases our ability overseas to protect fragile democracies. Um, but let's tie the two together. Um, I was in uh, Macedonia a year or so ago and um, I just was reading something the other day about um, one of the most corrupt Macedonian leaders uh, has fled and is seeking asylum in Hungary, right? Uh, in Hungary, in an EU nation, um, is potentially giving asylum to someone fleeing a Balkan nation that is seeking to clean up its act. And you think about how this story has been flipped, right? As Balkan nations are seeking to join the EU or seeking to clean up their economies and their political system, it's European nations that are now uh, the ones in which they are moving to. Um, the, the success of the, uh, of the name agreement um, is in many ways just a reminder on um, the importance of U.S. diplomacy. Um, so we have two great ambassadors in those countries, okay. right? You don't get better than Jeff Pyatt and, right. and Jess Bailey. Right. Um, and clearly this was ultimately an agreement that is due to the tremendous courage and foresight of uh, leaders uh, um, in those two countries. But we have great creative, thoughtful, committed State Department personnel on the ground there. Uh, and there are lots of countries that have no ambassadors today. Um, so Turkey. it's in Turkey, for instance, being one of them, Saudi Arabia being uh, Although another. I think there was just a nomination. Just a nomination. <laughs> so uh, other countries in the Balkan region oh, still absolutely. have uh, have vacancies. So um, when the U.S. is engaged in the Balkans, yeah. good things happen. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Senator. I, we have about five minutes remaining. If we could, if with your permission, sure. grab a couple of questions and then let you have the final word. Do we have anyone with questions? Well, I have my list here. So uh, you're so complete, Senator. That uh, <laughs> Good. I think we have uh, the microphone up here, Donna. We have just, we'll take the three questions here very briefly. Thank you. Please introduce yourself and your affiliation. Thank you. Uh, hi, Senator. My I have to speak very clearly into that microphone. Thank you. Bisana Bukwik from Al Jazeera. I'm going to ask you about uh, a topic that's not on the list today, but um, you mentioned 
the nomination to the ambassador to Saudi Arabia and Turkey that doesn't have an ambassador, the Jamal Khashoggi case and the talk about the war in Yemen. Uh, we've heard from senators uh, yesterday with Senator Corker there was an expectation there that there might be a vote before the end of the year regarding arms sales and the war in Yemen. I just wanted to get your take on this topic and do you think that this is actually going to happen before the end of this year? Well, and I'm going to put a little hook on that with the um, sale of the uh, Russian S-400 system to Turkey and there is some pending sanctions legislation. Correct. Would love your thoughts on that. Yes, sir, please. Yes, uh, good morning, sir. My name is Ali Al-Ahmed. I'm an independent journalist, dissident journalist from Saudi Arabia. So uh, thank you for your uh, moral voice uh, on this issue in my country. So uh, my question is your comment on the General Abizaid nomination. You know, he probably is the most qualified nominee in many administrations to be ambassador. He's not a political appointee. He's actually been there in those trenches. So I'd like to see this surprising nomination, your comment on it. Let me just turn because the confirmation process, I don't know whether there'll be space in the lame duck session for confirmation. The December 7th uh, budget issue looms. There's so much press of business. Help us, uh, obviously very concentrated on Mr. Khashoggi, uh, the Saudi-US uh, relationship. I know this is a little out of the transatlantic space, but, but my goodness, the Middle East is so impactful to European security, to American security. It's symptomatic of our foreign policy. Yeah. We try to talk yeah. about Asia, we try to talk about <laughs> Europe, and we get... Yeah. Drag back to the <laughs> Middle East. Um, so, um, so I don't uh, have an opinion on uh, Trump's nominee. Obviously, I know his reputation very solid, but I'll look forward to his appearance before uh, the committee. And I think we'll have some very important questions to ask him about um, you know, his thoughts on some you know, outstanding policy issues with respect to the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Again, um, just a complete abdication of you know, the basic blocking and tackling responsibility of an administration to let that post go unfilled for uh, two years. There's certainly the potential for two different votes in the Senate before the end of the year. The first is on another war powers resolution. Um, this was a vote that myself, Senator Sanders and Senator Lee brought before the Congress earlier this year. It failed narrowly and there is interest to bring back up the question of whether um, the administration is properly uh, engaged in hostilities in uh, Yemen without an authorization from Congress. Second, as you mentioned, uh, a potential notification from the administration on a sale of precision-guided missiles, um, which may or may not happen before uh, the end of the year. Uh, my sense is that um, there's not support right now in the Senate for um, that sale, um, but uh, we'll have to take everybody's temperature, especially after the announcement recently that we're going to be suspending um, uh, the midair refueling. Um, uh, listen, my, my broader thoughts on, on, on this are, are, are simple. I obviously have thought for a long time that this is a, um, a grave moral and national security disaster, that the U.S. is making you know, our country and our allies weaker by continuing to be involved in a destabilizing war in Yemen, and we're also causing the world's worst humanitarian catastrophe by being there. Um, I think eyes have been opened since the Khashoggi incident. Many of my colleagues were willing to continue to uh, provide military support because we believed the Saudis when they told us that they were not intentionally hitting civilians, despite the fact that all of the evidence told us that they were intentionally hitting civilians and civilian targets. Now that we saw them lie to our face for two weeks in the face of clear evidence that they had murdered Khashoggi, um, it's caused many of my colleagues to, I think, rethink whether the Saudis are telling us the truth with respect to their targeting inside of um, 
uh, inside of, uh, of, of, of Yemen, uh, which may lead to a different vote on arms sales and a war powers resolution than we saw earlier uh, in the year. And, you know, I applauded the administration's decision not to uh, refuel the planes, um, but I don't know why you go halfway. If you've come to the conclusion that it's a bad idea to refuel the planes, then why is it a good idea to sell them the bombs? Why is it a good idea to still have people inside the targeting center um, when the UN has basically come to the conclusion that these are uh, war crimes that are being committed? So I, I think it's a halfway policy that smacks more of politics and trying to stop a disastrous vote from happening in the Senate mm. than it is a real signal that you're that you have a comprehensive policy or policy change in the region. These are extraordinarily important issues and I know we have to let you get back to working on those issues, of, of course, of, of many things, but I can't tell you how grateful we are. We know it's busy days that you could share your insights. There's so much to watch transatlantically, whether Middle East, we didn't even get to the Indo-Pacific uh, <laughs> region. We'll just have to have you back again with us. But uh, with your applause, could you please join me in thanking Senator Murphy for being with us? Thank you, thank you. we're gonna let you go, thank you. And as we let Senator Murphy get back to Congress, I'm going to invite my two colleagues up, uh, Louis Lauter and Bill Reinch. And so what we thought we'd do just for the next little bit, um, we're not going to be as uh, newsworthy as the Senator, uh, but we're going to uh, take a lot of what he just told us and, and chew on it a little bit. Uh, Bill Reinch, uh, you almost don't need an introduction. The trade guy, the second half of the trade guy who's uh, giving us all the play-by-play -play on the status of our free trade agreements and Louis Lauder who uh, so ably leads CSIS's congressional relations um, and has just completed a really significant study with our colleague, uh, Dr. Kath Hicks, from our um, international security program exactly on, you did an incredible amount of interviewing people like Senator Murphy, and I hope you mentioned what category is. You just did a big study about, you know, thinking about how Congress views foreign and security policy. Louis, could you frame that a little bit for us and then we can maybe put some of uh, Senator Murphy's comments into sure. some of that uh, study. No, 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 ha ha happy to. Uh so uh, about a year ago, the Smith Richardson Foundation uh, funded a study uh, to look at, uh, they asked us to measure the internationalism of Congress. They felt that after the 2016 election, uh, there was a need to see if there were some isolationist tendencies developing uh, in the institution. Uh, so we took that mandate and we built a study that did a few things. We, we looked at the last uh, uh, three administrations, uh, we did, did case studies, um, end of the Bush administration, the beginning of the Trump administration, looking at congressional debates on foreign policy and trade issues. Uh, we looked at the motivations of members and what, what drives foreign policy um, activity. Uh, and then the sort of the centerpiece of the study uh, was uh, we looked at 50 members uh, from both the House and Senate, both parties. Uh, we tried to build a representative group uh, as best we could out of uh, 50 out of uh, you know, 535. <laughs> but um, what we did was uh, uh, we, we looked at uh, voting records, uh, statements, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, press releases, everything we could sort of grab from these members, uh, and then we asked some framing questions uh, that uh, tried to gauge their views on a range of issues, on threat perceptions, on uh, areas of, of opportunity and policy, 
uh, views on trade, views on use of force, uh, and views on different forms of foreign assistance. We looked at where all the data clustered, and uh, we took that data, we talked to a bunch of offices, and we determined that there were three core archetypes um, that exist in Congress. Uh, just really quickly, order-driven, uh, believe in American-led international liberal world order and strong support for uh, use, of, use of military force. Um, Values-driven, uh, which was uh, very focused on multilateral cooperation uh, and uh, more, more jaundiced view on use of force. Policies driven by a set of values, could be human rights, could be religious values or uh, democracy promotion. And then limits-driven, uh, which were um, which the focus there was uh, more a desire to limit America's uh, engagement abroad, limit use of force, limit uh, foreign assistance. Um, so the two main bumper stickers that came out of the study is one, uh, Congress is fairly internationalist in the sense that uh, of those three groups, the first two, order and values driven, were the largest groups. And they uh, uh, actually, uh, uh, out of the 50, uh, 45 represented those two groups with only five limits driven. Um, the other is that each archetype was bipartisan. Um, so uh, Senator Murphy, uh, as you might have guessed from his conversation, is in the values-driven category. Right. Uh, strong, you know, he has strong interest in democracy promotion and human rights values, and many of his policies are, are uh, connected uh, uh, to, um, to those views, and he fits pretty squarely in, the ar in that archetype, and actually we put him forward as a, as a uh, representative member of that archetype. So, uh, Bill, I was struck when Senator Murphy was talking about, uh, you know, when he goes to town hall meetings and driving by the, you know, the factories that aren't, aren't working, that although his constituents may not be necessarily raising foreign and security policy issues, trade is really at the intersection of the, the security uh, and foreign policy agenda as well as what it means for the average American people. So over the last two years, we've had tariffs on Asia, China, Europe. Um, what has been sort of, where do you think the mood music is in Congress and the next Congress now with the House uh, democratically controlled? Where does this lead us on trade? And is the next, the first, uh, first thing up for the new Congress is the, as I like to call it, the new NAFTA, but it's the USMCA. You smack her. You yes. smack her. <laughs> we can do better than you smack her. Well. That was a Cana that's what the Canadians ah, are calling it. Ah, but that makes sense. Well, uh, what was interesting in, in the study that Louis pointed out is that trade doesn't really fit into, into that category. Is, yeah. There were, uh, for, it's oversimplification to say that people are pro-trade or anti-trade, but that's an easy way to characterize them. And there were both groups in all three categories. Uh, our take on the election is that it was uh, kind of a wash. I mean, one of the things about trade is that while people have opinions about it, and often very strong opinions about it, uh, when you ask them a different question, which is what are the three biggest problems the country has, trade is usually number nine. Um, sadly, climate change is number 10. Uh, we were, uh, you know, I think in the most recent thing, it may have made it to number seven, but then there were only nine things. Um, it's called a low intensity issue. People tend to vote for other reasons. Uh, the top three, which alternate in what, who's number one, are terrorism, healthcare, which was big this time, and the economy, which is big this time. If you look at the election results, it's kind of a wash. You had a number of members, uh, including in the Senate, who ran against the president's trade policy, and they lost. 
you had a couple people who ran, some people who ran in support of the president's trade policy, Republicans, and they won uh, in places where you would think they would win. Northeastern Minnesota, Iron Range country, steel tariffs are popular there because it means more iron ore. Uh, the uh, representative uh, Mike Bost, who represents, among other places, uh, Granite City, Illinois, where they reopened a steel plant uh, as a result of the tariffs, uh, he won. Uh, there were some seats in the Midwest, Iowa uh, in particular, that flipped from Republican to Democrat, uh, I think, and a couple other places, where I think you can say uh, the president's trade policy had something to do with, uh, with the defeat uh, of the Republicans. So, you know, a little of this, a little of that, and at the end of the day, uh, uh, people, uh, people's views on trade tend to be predictably regional, and you'll find that uh, Democrats and Republicans in coastal states uh, tend to be pro-trade, uh, and they tend to be re-elected. And uh, Democrats and Republicans in uh, the Rust Belt area tend to be more skeptical about trade, and they were re-elected uh, in both parties. Sherrod Brown won in Ohio, a bunch of Republicans won in Ohio. And uh, you couldn't find a lot of differences between the two parties uh, in Ohio on, on trade issues. So it was a bit of a wash. Coming in though, I think you're going to see some differences. Uh, we did a, a quick survey of the incoming Democrats uh, and looked just at their public statements to see what they had said about this. And there were 55 of them. Uh, there may be a few more depending on you know, the undecided races, but we looked at 55. Uh, the most telling comment was that half of them had said really nothing about trade, 24 of the 55, and that it apparently was not a huge issue in, in their districts. Of the remaining, uh, 21 had made pro-trade statements uh, and uh, of various kinds, uh, and eight had made what might be characterized as anti-trade statements of various kinds. And then there were two that were confused that we didn't <laughs> decided not to to count. Um, I won't get into Outliers. that. Outliers. <laughs> uh, they had contradictory. Uh, okay. This is, I'm sure, novel for a politician. They had their bases uh, to, to say, to be on both sides of a question. <laughs> their bases but uh, what was, we thought was telling was that um, for those that chose to talk about it in the campaign by really almost three to one, uh, they supported trade. And if you think about it, this kind of matches uh, with the one footnote, the Democratic basis support. If you look at polling on trade, the most pro-trade parts of our population are uh, young people and minorities. And that is increasingly, the core. by young I, mean, I don't mean 18, I mean up to 40. Uh, I guess I can say that's Oh God young. bless, that's a young <laughs> definition. Wonderful, but wonderful. As support for trade declines as you, get, uh, as you get old, I should be the most anti-trade person in the room probably looking at, at the audience, though I'm not. Uh, so that is core Democratic support. At the same time, uh, a significant support of, uh, for Democrats comes from organized labor, where trade skepticism really has been their highest priority. So the party is divided, uh, which is one reason why they don't really have a policy. We can talk about that if you want to. But what I th see coming in, I think, are more people that are going to uh, going to wave the pro-trade banner and are going to be open to voting for things like. Uh, USMCA and other agreements that might come up. Um, the Democrats will hold it hostage because that's what you do when you don't own the White House and are in the party that controls things. You ask for a ransom. So there'll be a lot of drama, but in the end, I think uh, 
it's too soon to write uh, an obituary for trade agreements. Well, that's, that's extremely good to know and, and to think about that this was a fairly pro-trade despite the, uh, the very negative sentiment that continues to come from President Trump even just you know, yesterday with the, towards Europe and the you know, unfair trade practices. Um, Louis, let me, let me ask, and uh, maybe helping in some ways our audience, you know, how does Congress use think tanks um, in, in a broader sense? So sort of helping people understand how our interaction, someone described this morning, I was at a, an earlier conversation that said, you know, think tanks are this great bridge between sort of civil society and government. We sort of talk through and think about different problems and we offer some new ideas. Help our, help our audience understand how CSIS and all the other think tanks here in Washington, how do we interact with Congress? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, not, not all think tanks are the same, of right. course, but uh, um, you know, we're, you know, for us, uh, it's really two things. Um, you know, the primary, well, actually three things. We're a platform, as, as we are here today, you know, for members of Congress <laughs> to, to share the ideas with the general population. But the ways we most help Congress is, of course, uh, providing ideas and information in a targeted way where we're you know, looking for um, the, the space where there's a need for information, so need to know rather than good to know. Uh, and the other is convening. So uh, uh, you know, there are no real, uh, as many of you guys know, there's no real cocktail party environment in Washington where everyone in the same policy sphere, they get to know each other and they talk about issues. Think tanks really play that function, especially the bipartisan ones. So we put a lot of time into that. Um, you know, I think if things are shifting a little bit, uh, kind of tying things a little bit more to the election, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about oversight and, uh, um, and investigation, um, but uh, there's little, there, there's even talk about Congress being a co-equal branch of government, um, but that's tied more to sort of the, more the, the divisive political environment. Um, I'm interested in seeing how Congress becomes a co-equal branch of government in a bipartisan way on foreign policy, because it always ta it takes, um, it takes uh, knowledgeable members we're putting in the work and the energy, such uh, as, as the senator, uh, to do that. Uh, and we have an influx, not just this election, the last few elections, of younger members with significant national security experience that are re-energizing the institution. So one thing that we're interested in here is seeing how do we uh, leverage those more junior members who are highly engaged, give them a ramp to do their work in a meaningful way, um, and, uh, and give them an avenue to help strengthen that institution, not just over the next you know, six months to year and a half period before we jump into you know, the presidential campaign, but beyond that, who's thinking about Congress as an institution uh, in foreign policy? So to me, that's sort of the new frontier. Um, we're gonna keep doing what we normally do, but how do we get the, you know, the, the Joaquin Castros, the Michael Gallagher's, and the Todd Young's, and the Senator Sullivan's, and now we've got Abigail Spanberger, and Alyssa Slotkin, and uh, Mike Walsh, and others that are coming in uh, and are gonna really make an impact. Fantastic. I, I want to tie a question for both of you. One very powerful tool that Congress has used, as much as Senator Murphy said, you know, boy, we're overdoing the sanctions, has been uh, congressional sanctionless legislation. So North Korea, Iran, certainly Russia. Um, that feels like a very heavy instrument that members of Congress have used, particularly to send a message to the administration. I don't like how you're implementing. Uh, executing a policy. Uh, so sort of your thoughts on that and then turning to Bill, the business community, uh, certainly uh, on, I can speak more on the, on the Russia standpoint, the business community is getting caught in the crossfire of our increased sanctions as well as 
for the transatlantic community on the Iran sanctions. How, maybe you could help us understand how businesses are addressing a very sanctions-heavy approach. But Louis, sort of, what are you seeing on the sanctions? No, sure. Well, so one of the, one of the um, uh, data points out of our study was uh, the uh, level of bipartisan view on threat perceptions. You know, even on Iran, uh, the threat perception, we looked at uh, policy options and threat perceptions. So of course, on Iran, on the, on the policy options, there's a very partisan divide because of JCPOA. But on threat perceptions, there's bipartisanship. Um, same with Russia, same with North Korea, same with China. So I think, um, you know, sanctions are a reflection of that and, and, and congressional, uh, con consistent congressional support for sanctions. Uh, but that only goes so far. Uh, one of the recommendations in our study was for Congress to engage more broadly than just sanctions to, to look at um, other, uh, inst creating other institutions within uh, Congress, such as the Senate NATO Oversight Group uh, and uh, Helsinki Commission that, that broadened the, de broaden the debate on, 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 on foreign policy. Uh, and give members more opportunities to engage because sanctions is just sort of continue to light on it. You know, you've testified in front of the banking committee on sanctions. Was notable there was, you know, how the members are starting to be a little more nuanced yeah. in how they want to engineer the policy solutions. It's not as much of a message dynamic. They're taking more en uh, ownership of the policy uh, and wanting to be more targeted. That's an interesting development as well. And I think because there is that concern about sanctions uh, fatigue that the senator mentioned. Well, just on that point, Bill, before I turn to you, what's been so strange to me, and the senator referenced our, our work on the Kremlin playbook, I've testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Senate Banking Committee. Those are not our home, our natural committees. We really work with the Senate, Farm, you know, the Foreign Relations and the Armed Services Committee. That's sort of our bread and butter. But it speaks to the grappling with policies that don't knit, neatly fit into an armed services or a foreign relations. It's this integrative uh, dynamic, which, you know, in my, my pitch is the nature of the threat is so widespread from economics to disinformation to the military component of it and cyber, you need that comprehensive strategy. And I almost feel as if we're not, the, the Congress is not even organized to help manage and, oh, and provide that guidance. So just from bio, the evolution of this threat has brought us uh, into this very new dynamic where we're talking to the banking committee about Russia policy. And um, that's a very new committee for us. Agreed. Bill, where, where do you hear uh, from the business community and, and others on the train components? What's the, what's the sense on sanctions and the U.S. constant use of sanctions. We've, again, there's very strong reaction from the European nations about the imposition of the secondary sanctions on following the snapback, uh, the Iran nuclear agreement. Can you give us some, offer some insights when you talk to your colleagues? Well, the main thing they don't like is uncertainty. Um, American companies, I think, by and large, simply want to know what the rules are, and then they'll do the best they can to obey the rules. Uh, when the rules change, uh, or when the rules are uh, up in the air, that's when they get frustrated. Uh, what is happening now, which has also happened in the past, also, is when there's a, a policy gap uh, between um, the United States and, and others. I mean, the, the worst, the worst wor of all worlds for the business community is, is unilateral action. Uh, which I've always viewed as, uh, on sanctions as kind of a lose-lose strategy because uh, when the United States acts unilaterally, uh, 
for the most part, it does not achieve its foreign policy objective because other countries come in and fill in the gap and supply whatever it is that we're refusing to supply. And at the same time, our guys lose the market. So we lose on both counts. We don't achieve our policy goal, and we hurt our, our own people at the same time. Uh, when you pursue san sanctions multilaterally, you can obviate uh, at least uh, a, a good part of that. Uh, the last two administrations were relatively successful at doing that, particularly with respect to Iran, uh, where both President Bush and President Obama were able to mount a, a really global coalition uh, to try to approach the uh, Iranians with a, you know, a single agenda, uh, and that led to the JCPOA. Uh, this administration, by pulling out of that, has brought back to the forefront the, the, the policy gap between the United States and, and Europe. And for uh, large American companies in particular, that's the worst of all possible worlds, because what they are seeing is constraints on their activity in uh, Iran in particular, which is, a, is potentially a significant market. It's, what, 80 million people, something like that, and it's you know, it's a serious market. There's a lot of difficulties. I don't want to uh, underestimate those. But there's a lot of interest uh, in, in going there when they're allowed to go there. But what they see now is they can't go, and European country, companies can. Uh, now the administration is trying to uh, prevent that. But uh, that is the worst possible world for uh, American companies. But what they see is not only are they being shut out, but they're seeing their competitors have an advantage. And they understand that when that happens, this is not a short-term problem. When you lose market share or when you're prevented from obtaining market share, that's a long, that's a long time. It doesn't, it doesn't automatically come back to the Americans when the diplomatic and, and sanctions situations change. You're seeing this now with the tariffs. There was an article this morning about this on, on soybeans. Uh, we have essentially, uh, via Chinese retaliation, we've uh, essentially shut American soybean farmers out of the Chinese market. Uh, and they're busy looking for other places. They're going to Europe. They're going, yes, they are going to Europe, but it doesn't offset the harm that's mm -hmm. been done entirely. But the, the real problem is that someday, probably, the tariffs will go away. That doesn't mean that the American market share will come back. Uh, the Chinese have gone to Brazil, they've gone to uh, other places, and that's likely to remain. So there's a permanent shift in the market and if you look at this historically, this is what happened with uh, uh, when we had the Russian grain embargo after in the Carter administration, and uh, we never recovered there, partly because what is damaged is uh, the American reputation as a reliable supplier. And if you look at what Xi Jinping said in the, um, at various points in the, in the last six months, is the Americans are unreliable. We need to go it alone. And that has a lot of implications for their technology policy, which is going to uh, be, continue to be a, a sore subject. But it also has uh, a lot of implications for their policy on agriculture and normal consumer goods. So that's the worst thing that can happen, and that's what I think companies are most worried about right now. How much does China dominate your work? right now on, and on the, the tariffs. And I'm just wondering, Louis, too, what are the key issues that, Louis has the great advantage of we're in our little, our little lane of our expertise, but Louis sees the entire institution and sort of what the demand signal is on what issues for Congress and then what do you anticipate will be the demand single, signal in the new Congress? It ends up in the trade world being behind uh, almost everything. 
I mean, I was at a breakfast this morning where the topic was Europe uh, and, and cars and steel. <laughs> Not in the beginning. Okay. We, got, we, 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 we managed to go 20 minutes without talking about China. Okay. But then uh, eventually it came up, and it came up in the sense that there's a common challenge. Right. Uh, we both faced the common challenge. And it came up in the, in the, in the sense that maybe this is a, an opening uh, and a way that we can work together to resolve some of our particular differences in order to uh, present a common front against a common challenge. Uh, and that comes up, it comes up with the Japanese, it comes up with the Koreans, it comes up with the Australians, it comes up in virtually every conversation that I have. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I agree. I mean, it's, China is, is probably um, sort of the regional, uh, sort of the, the great power challenge that uh, pulls in the most bipartisan support and interest, and we saw that reflected in the debate and the passage of the, the CFIUS reform effort. Um, that was a strongly bipartisan effort. Um, and also, you know, the um, you know competition with China filters into the trade discussion. It filters into the security discussion. Uh, those interested in uh, members uh, interested in Africa, uh, com you know, competition in Africa. China is a bit mm -hmm. probably the, the primary issue. Um, so I think you know that's going to be big. Uh, you know, of course, much of the agenda is going to be driven by the flip in the House, and, and so Russia is going to be fairly prominent. North Korea, challenges around North Korea are going to be fairly prominent uh, as well. So I think we'll see a continuation of many of the issues. One that will spike, which was reflected today, I think, is, you know, is the conflict in Yemen, yeah. because it's been more of a democratic priority to, uh, to challenge uh, our, our role in the conflict in Yemen, and so I think that, that spikes a little bit. But China is probably the area of greatest bipartisan concern and interest. Uh, we'll see some activity across a wide range of issues. Yeah, if I can oh, add sure. to that, while there's division on trade policy in many different ways, uh, both parties are internally divided and they're divided between the parties. China is an issue that tends to unite everybody uh, with a, a level of concern. There, there's a big argument about whether the tariffs are a good idea and whether they'll be effective, but there's very little argument uh, against the the essentially the president's diagnosis of the problem. The Section 301 report that was issued, most people would tell you that was uh, A, correct, uh, and B, important. Uh, important to our national security and important to our economic competitiveness. So there's a lot of support for that. At the same time, I think in the trade world, getting if I can get away from foreign policy for just a minute, the, the first issue next year will be the USMCA because at some point the president will, uh, will send that up. And just to elaborate on what I alluded to earlier, I think what will happen is that the Democrats will, um, uh, will say it's not good enough. That's what the party that's out of power always says. Uh, and they will not be able to resist the temptation to, to exact a ransom uh, for their support. And the ransom will appear in, in two ways. Uh, germane to the agreement, I think they'll say it doesn't do enough on, on labor uh, because the Democrats have a labor constituency that believes that, and it's important that they check that box. And I think many members of Congress on the Democrat side believe that although the labor provisions are an improvement over current NAFTA, they don't go as far, certainly as far as the AFL-CIO would like. So I think the message to Ambassador Lighthizer will go back, you know, go back to Mexico and get more, which I think actually is, is, is an attainable goal. Uh, the other part is that they will not be able to resist the temptation to do what uh, the party that's out of the White House always does uh, when a, a must bill comes up to the Congress, which is hold it hostage for something else, uh, non-trade. And they'll have a big debate about that. You know, Don't build the wall, 
do something on immigration, have an have a infrastructure bill, you know, do our kind of tax reform, who knows, uh, spend more money on something that we want, there will be a price. And the question uh, always is, do you overplay your hand and ask for too much? Um, I think the worst possible outcome from the standpoint of both parties is to end up in a situation where there is no NAFTA, because the president withdraws from it, and no USMCA, and the exporting trade community is left with nothing. And I think both parties will work to avoid that. Um, but there will be a lot of drama, uh, really between the middle of December and probably the end of February, uh, over what to do about this. Because you know, once the bill is actually submitted, it can't be changed. Uh, so the drama has to occur between now and the time that it can be submitted, the, the time the president will submit it, uh, in order to, if you want to force uh, or encourage changes either via the text or the, via side letters or whatever. And everybody will say, no, you can't do that. The, the deal's done. We negotiated. We, you know, we will have signed it. In fact, in virtually every one of these things, uh, the Congress has forced administrations to go back and do something different. Oftentimes little, not big, but uh, the idea that you can go back and have a little redo is not, is not new, and this administration, I think, will not be able to avoid that. But your sense of timing would be sometime next year, fall of next year? Because then you start running into 2020 yeah. politics. Well, if the White House adheres to the intent of the statute, uh, which gives the International Trade Commission 105 days to conduct a, an evaluation of the, of the uh, impact of the agreement, 105 days from the day of signing, uh, which will be the end of this month. Um, if the ITC takes all that time and if the administration decides to wait for that, they don't really have to, but it would be wise for them to do that, that means that they couldn't send the bill up before essentially the Ides of March, appropriately. Uh, and then the Congress, then a clock starts ticking. And the congressional clock is 90 days, but that's days in session, not days of the calendar. So you can see how that would stretch uh, through the summer, although the reality is it, that doesn't usually happen. When you reach that point, the agreement cannot be amended. Uh, it cannot be delayed. It cannot be filibustered. So it usually ends up uh, being dealt with in less than 90 days. So I would say, you know, June, July, probably the, by the August recess would be a, a target time uh, for dealing with it. It could be sooner. Uh, the commission has already started its study, even though the agreement hasn't been signed. Uh, so there's a good possibility they won't take all the way till middle March. But the more important indicator is not that so much as there's going to be you know, a, an informal negotiation. The Democrats are going to say, we want more of something. And the administration will have to deal with that. And the fact that re the Senate remains Republican will make that complicated. You know, what the Democrats want more of may not be what the re Senate Republicans want more of. Uh, so it will be a complicated uh, negotiation. But both bodies have to pass it. And so both bodies now are going to have a significant say in what happens next? One just final WTO reform. There's a lot of concern that if the U.S. does not 
continue to, to put a judge forward for the appellate process. The, the, I know <laughs> this is yeah. a very, you know, the wither, the WTO, what, just a quick prediction on that. I'm asking all these tough questions. I think the administration is actually, um, not the president, but I think Ambassador Lighthizer is, is I think, personally, uh, more supportive of, of mm. the WTO than the president's rhetoric might think. I think he sees it as a useful tool mm. uh, and is as happy to work within its boundaries uh, if he can achieve what he wants. Uh, I think where this administration differs from previous ones is that, the, that it's perfectly willing to go beyond the WTO boundaries. If it can't get what it wants inside the box, it's, it's happy to color outside the box. And this is an important difference, I think, between them and the EU that comes up in every, question, every conversation I have with Europeans. Uh, the Europeans want to, I think they share a growing concern about China. They want to address that problem. They want to address it inside the box. They want to address mm -hmm. it within the context of the WTO and the WTO rules. I think the American administration's uh, approach is, uh, sure, if you can do it that way, good. But uh, we're skeptical about that. And we're perfectly happy to work outside the rules if, if we have to. Um, what they'll do on reform is hard to say. I've had some conversations about this. Um, uh, I think you know they are engaged with the EU and Japan trilaterally on an effort to address some reform issues. Uh, they have certainly succeeded in putting this issue on the front burner. The Canadians have started a process that involves I think 13 other countries, counting the EU as one, uh, on WTO reform that is going to take a long time, yeah. but may get somewhere. The EU has produced a paper on the same subject, which is more ambitious than the Canadian paper. And I think they're going back to produce another version of it, which I hope will continue to be ambitious. So things are circulating out there. <laughs> circulating out there. I think the unknown is whether the president at some point will run out of patience uh, so far, I think the advice he's gotten is don't. Uh, let's watch and see how these things develop. But uh, he could at some point um, pull the plug on American involvement in the institution. I mean, I think Senator Murphy captured the administration's attitude about institutional structures very well. And I think that skepticism on the president's part includes the WTO. So it's something that I worry about a good bit. Excellent. Well, the one question I want you guys to formulate while we reach out into the audience is put your crystal ball on and make a prediction of what you think uh, the next Congress will, will engage in and what you think, how, how it will work out. It can be an issue of your, of your choice. One thing that maybe we haven't talked about that you think the Congress uh, will, will focus on. And let me turn to our audience, please. Uh, any questions or comments you have, we have one up front, so it gives you a little time to formulate that crystal ball question. Sir, just wait for the microphone, please, and your question. Yeah, good morning, uh, distinguished panelists and Madam Chairman. I used to come from London, England. Uh, the United States has been the founder of the League of Nations after World War I, and then the United Nations. And the European Union was formulated with the idea that it would become the United States of Europe. Uh, and recently, we have the European Commission for Competition. Uh, the chairman being Margaret Westaga, 
she was she find Apple computer uh, for 14 billion tax dollars to be given to Ireland. They have not been paying the taxes. And then she has fined Google, Alphabet Incorporated, $8 billion for antitrust uh, activities. And I, Sir, your question, I, please? Yes, yeah, yeah, the question is right very there. simple. The question is very simple. Why, do, why does our head of state just simply say, oh, she's the tax lady, she hates the United States, and then we are embarrassed by the Europeans who say, what, what do you have for a head of state? Uh, isn't there a consultation between the co-equal branch Congress and the head of state? Instead of consultation from top to bottom, why can't it be from co-equal? So that's, that's my Thank question. You. Thank you. Why can't there be a co-equal consultation so that our head of state will not be, uh, make embarrassing statements? <laughs> I'm not sure that question is answerable, but it raises an important point about new, the, the new economy, uh, digital trade and its importance, uh, and how members of Congress are dealing with very technologically sophisticated issues, uh, AI, uh, privacy protection, taxation issues. This is really difficult stuff. How do you, how do you approach that as a think tank to help? Everyone's like, you take that one. No, sure. Yeah, no. I, well, I think on the idea of a co-equal branch, you know, that when you have a single, just historically, where there's a single party controlling Congress and administration, it, it creates a, the executive branch has an easier time driving the policy. Um, now that the House has flipped, there's going to be more of a concerted effort to stand up to the executive branch. The big question is, is this a partisan battle or is this an institutional struggle? Um, you know, there, are, there are many opportunities for the executive branch and the legislative branch to talk to each other. One can never control the other. It's always a question of you know, the levers of power and who's taking power off the table and using it effectively. So it's, it's the important question right now. I don't have the answer to how they will be able to exercise it. But, um, but uh, that is, it, it's going to shift because the, the, the party dynamics uh, have shifted. And on the, on the, on the yeah, idea- Yeah, crystal ball question. Yeah, no, sure. And then on the idea of, um, I, I think actually, um, this wasn't, wasn't gonna be my crystal ball pick, <laughs> but the future of work, future of the economy, there are a select group of members who are really focusing on those issues, but it's, it's too small. Mm. You know, and these are the big fundamental questions affecting the American public is what is, what is the world going to look like in 20 years? What is the economy going to look like? I think, um, I think there's an opportunity for there to be more leadership and more discussion about what that me means because there's, there's inevitably going to be important legislative activity to support you know, adjustments in our economy. Um, and you know, you've got Sarah Warner, um, uh, Mark Warner is talking about this, uh, Kevin McCarthy is talking about this, um, Seth Moulton, but outside of that, there's not a whole lot, uh, but I expect there to be more. I think watching some of the, the hearings when um, the technology companies had to come forward and talk about, particularly on the Russia investigation, you could just tell that there was a there was a lack of deep understanding of these technological changes and how they impact every element of society. Yeah. So I, think I think it's the, the younger members, the, the newer members yeah. coming in, they, they get it. Uh, the more senior members, <laughs> uh, some of them do and, and some of them don't. Yeah. Bill? 
I think on the on Commissioner Verstegger's actions, I think the prevailing view of the United States is that they're they're ill-conceived. It's an effort. It's, it's really an anti-American effort by the EU to pull down American companies that are successful in the face of the fact that the Europeans have no companies like that that are successful. And I think if they pursue policies like this, they never will have companies that are successful. Uh, but uh, it will play out. It'll probably play out with the European Court of Justice as much as as anything. The more uh, the, the newest debate on this is the idea of a digital tax, which the French have floated and. Uh, it sounds as though, and this is a very interesting question because uh, I think it's a, uh, an obvious source of revenue for cash-strapped governments, uh, including this one. And I, the view that I think is on the, that we are moving in the direction of, thanks in part to uh, Chancellor Merkel, who's uh, found a kind of a face-saving way to go on this, is the OECD is engaged in an effort to develop a common approach on digital ta taxation. Um, if everybody waits for that, uh, I think we end up in a much better place. We end up in a, in a place where the Europeans and the Americans are not competing on this issue, uh, and there will be a tax, uh, but it will be one that, that uh, will be sort of multilaterally agreed upon and that everyone can apply, and the result will be that companies, I mean, nobody's happy paying taxes, but uh, the companies will at least be able to say that the, that the, the impact is evenly spread uh, globally and it's not skewed in a way that disadvantages one country's companies vis-a-vis -vis another. And your crystal ball? You've already put one down, I have to say. You're almost, you're almost excused. But, have, you know, okay, USMCA I'll, by July. Well, yeah, I'll, go have, ahead. I'll have, I'll have, well, one, one was more? that one. <laughs> the other one is that uh, one of the investigations that the Congress will, be in, will launch will be an investigation of the steel tariff exclusion process hmm. and whether that's being, uh, whether that's, being handled You mean appropriately used because of the national security clause? No, the, no. no the question Sorry. of excluding companies who have applied ah, for an exclusion ah, of the, the tariff. The process by which they adjudicate. Yeah, who, whether ah. that's a fair, uh, honest process that's being run competently and with integrity. There's a lot of complaints about that coming from the Congress. And I don't have an opinion about what the right answer is. I know that a lot of people are upset, and I think when subpoenas start flying, and they will because they're fun, uh, that's an area where depends on who, who's on the side of that fun. I think. Yeah. Well, I've been on I've been on the receiving uh -huh. end as well, but uh, in the past. But uh, I think that's uh, there will be a lot of, uh, you know, the the Democrats have spent 18 months complaining on, on uh, calling the administration on process fouls, no consulting, no transparency, no paying attention to what they're talking about, and on the collateral damage that they argue the policies have done. That allows them to avoid attacking the actual policies, attack the way they're being implemented. Uh, but now they have, on the House side, they put their money where their mouth is. You're going to see investigations. You're going to see subpoenas. You're going to see hearings. Uh, and you're going to see the trade agencies of the government essentially playing defense and being called up all the time to explain what they're doing and why they're doing it. So expect a lot of drama in the first uh, six months of the year. Well, that's so good because we really have had no, no drama <laughs> for the last two years. Yes. So I think we are Change of pace. hungry right. and ready. And as you said, you know, the, the two things that businesses dislike the most, unilateralism and uncertainty, well, I think we're going to, in addition to drama, I think we may have a little more uncertainty, probably a little more unilateralism. So we're going to be busy here at CSIS, but I'm so glad, you, Louie and Bill, you help us steer through this and that we have great colleagues like Senator Murphy who are very insightful and we're so grateful to audiences like you that come in during
during the lunch hour to listen to us. Thank you very much. We are grateful for uh, your insights and your participation. We look forward to having more conversations when the new Congress gets into place. So with that, please join me in thanking Bill and Louie for a great conversation. And we didn't even give them lunch. And we didn't even give you lunch. Good coffee. Thank you.